gracious and loving God, on this week of Thanksgiving, we're mindful that we have so much to be thankful for and that you are the one that we are thankful to. And so as we study the book of Jeremiah today, we just ask that gratitude would infuse our hearts and open our minds to perceive clearly who you are and who we are as those made in your image. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by the prophet Jeremiah, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, do not conceal it. Say Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed, her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed. For out of the north, the nation has come up against her. It shall make her land a desolation, and no one shall live in it. Both human beings and animals shall flee away. In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the people of Israel shall come, they and the people of Judah together. They shall come weeping as they seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards it, and they shall come and join themselves to the Lord by an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty because they have sinned against the Lord, the true pasture, the Lord, the hope of their ancestors. Flee from Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like male goats leading the flock. For I am going to stir up and bring against Babylon a company of great nations from the land of the north, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she, she shall be taken. Their arrows are like the arrows of a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I am going to punish the king of Babylon and his land as I punish the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to its pasture, and it shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead, its hunger shall be satisfied. In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought and there shall be none and the sins of Judah and none shall be found for I will pardon the remnant that I have spared. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared, thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, 
with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. The heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. All right. Thank you, Evie. Wonderful reading. And as you'll note, today we're looking not just at Jeremiah, but we heard that passage from the book of Ezra and also Psalm 126, because what we're trying to do now is come full circle and uh, the joke that I made on Sunday is if you've ever seen the movie, The Sixth Sense, you know, you kind of have this movie. Then at the end, you discover in a big twist that Bruce Willis is actually dead. And there's kind of this wonderful twist at the end. And although I'm not as clever as whoever wrote that movie, that's kind of what I was hoping to do with Jeremiah, that what we've really been doing is a long prologue to Christ the King Sunday, which is next Sunday. And then for the Sundays after that, we're going to look at the four themes of Advent represented by each Advent candle, which is hope, preparation, joy, and love. We're going to see how Jeremiah speaks to those themes and so in order to kind of get us there, what we have to do is come full circle and to see how Babylon, which we've been viewing through the book of Jeremiah as the agent of judgment, actually stands under the same judgment as everyone else, that here the judge Babylon is actually also judged. And, you know, this isn't a, a big stretch for Christians as we read in Paul's letter to the Romans, all fall short of the glory of God, all stand under the judgment of God. But in the book of Jeremiah, that get, gets played out, not at the individual level, but at the level of different kingdoms, right? Kingdoms, they come and they go, uh, they rise and they fall, but the Lord our God stands forever. And so Babylon, this great power from the north, now we're coming full circle and they themselves will stand under the judgment of God and will kind of get that vision for Israel being restored, as God said, and being sent home to rebuild their house, to rebuild the, the temple. So we kind of start in verse two with Babylon being taken. We find out later who takes Babylon. It's not Israel, right? It's Persia. It's a different worldly kingdom. And of course, Persia will later, later fall to the Greeks and the Greeks to the Romans and on and on it will go. But Babylon is taken and the two Babylonian gods, Bel and Merodach, are put to shame. Um, this is a big theme in the Bible that all the idols of the earth eventually get revealed as empty, whether it's the golden calf of Israel or 
the idols of Babylon, and the idols are dismayed. And notice how in verse 3, for out of the north the nation shall come. This is actually the exact same language Jeremiah used to speak of Babylon taking Israel, right? There was a scary nation that came from the north that sweeps in, and now this same language is being used, right? Babylon once was that scary nation. Now they're the nation that needs to be scared of the greater power. And I think that this cycle kind of makes sense whenever we live our life caught in the worldly drama and dance of power games, right? Sometimes we're the powerful one, sometimes we're the powerless one, uh, and that's how things work in the world. And the invitation of the Bible and of Jeremiah is not to win that game, but rather to step out of it altogether and to remember that we are the Lord's people and that our meaning isn't found in winning that game, but rather in being the covenantal people of God, right? And uh, forming this everlasting covenant that Jeremiah speaks of. And so here, verse four, in those days and at that time, what days and what time? Uh, the days and the time when Israel's 70 years of exile has come to an end and they get to come back home, right? So in those days, the people shall come weeping as they seek the Lord their God, and they shall ask the way to Zion. Um, this is a, an interesting verse. Why do they need to ask the way? Because they've been gone for 70 years. They need to remember the way back home, right? They've been out of their land for so long, uh, someone's going to have to give them a map on how to get back to their own land. Uh, but whenever they do, they're going to be seeking the Lord their God once again, uh, and they're going to join themselves to the Lord by an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. And this language is really dripping with grace, this idea of an everlasting covenant. Um, this everlasting covenant is not meant to replace the covenant God made with Moses at Sinai. It is the outgrowth of that first covenant, but it is a different covenant. Um, it is a covenant that, in a sense, can't be broken by the people's disobedience. We're going to get to that a little bit later in this uh, study, but one of the reasons that people went into exile, according to Jeremiah, was because they broke the covenant. And the blessings and the and the curses of the covenant are spelled out with absolute clarity in the book of Deuteronomy, right? If you follow the covenant, you're going to be blessed. But if you don't keep the covenant, there's going to be consequences. And Jeremiah and the people understood their exile as their failure to keep the covenant. And so now God's speaking of an everlasting covenant that won't be forgotten. And we kind of have to explore together what is this covenant? How is it different? How does it connect to the first? In verse six, God says how his people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. This, of course, brings to mind the imagery of Jesus, the good shepherd. And then the enemies are saying, we're not guilty, right? They've sinned against the Lord. And part of what God is telling Babylon is, no, you actually are guilty. 
And this is a very um, hard thing for us to hold together in our heads because Babylon is spoken of as God's agent in scripture, as um, the instrument through whom God will hold his people accountable and discipline them, which would make my logical mind um, think something along the lines of exactly what they're saying in verse seven. Well, in that sense, they can't be guilty. They're not sinning against the Lord. They're being used by the Lord. But in the same way that an ant could never understand the complexity of being a human being, we can't understand the complexity of God's purposes. And so we're kind of asked to hold two things as being true at once. On the one hand, Babylon is guilty. They are an arrogant nation. They conquer, they abuse, they do things that are not pleasing to God's heart. And all that's true. And now they're being held accountable. But on the other hand, um, God did use Babylon in a mysterious way um, to hold his people accountable for breaking the covenant. But of course, that accountability, that discipline was only temporary. 70 years, Jeremiah said. And this chapter speaks of the time when they need to go home. And when that day comes, verse eight, it says, flee from Babylon, you know, be like the male goats leading the flock. The male goats are not the passive goats. They're the stubborn goats that just run on ahead. And God's almost saying, you know, be that kind of goat when the time comes with urgency, get out of Babylon. And I want you to go back home. And then God says, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and then verse 19, I'm going to restore Israel to its pasture. Again, the metaphor of sheep in a pasture. And so whether it's John chapter 10 or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, here, Israel is seen to be sheep who need to return to the pasture where God has created them to feed and to live. Uh, and then we're told that they will be restored and sent to many places. And one of those is Gilead. Um, and I just share that because y'all might remember in Jeremiah 8.22, when the prophet asks, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And here Israel is actually being sent to Gilead to be that balm. Because remember, the restoration is to their original purpose, right? Whenever God restores, God restores to an original design. And the original design was for Israel to be a blessing, right? Isaiah says, I've given you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel is meant to be balm. They're meant to be a healing people for the world. And so it's very subtle, but and God restoring them to Gilead, he's actually answering the question of 822. Is there no balm in Gilead? Israel was always meant to be the balm. But for that to happen, there has to be complete and total forgiveness. And, you know, whenever we think about what is this everlasting covenant, one of the ways we can at least begin that conversation, because it's a tricky conversation, is to say this is a covenant of complete and total forgiveness. Um, now, we read this as Christians, so 
Orthodox Christianity would see the complete and total forgiveness associated with this everlasting covenant as fulfilled in Christ, and that the true one who keeps the covenant perfectly is Christ, and by virtue of our baptism, we are in him, right? That's kind of how that works. But for us or for God's people to be the balm, there has to be complete and total forgiveness. And that's what's spoken of in verse 20, right? In those days and at that time, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought and there shall be none, the sins of Judah and none shall be found for I will pardon the remnant that I have spared. And so when God says, I'm not going to find anyone's iniquity, I'm not going to find or discover their sins, uh, it's not because we're all going to become perfect and finally figure out how to keep the covenant God made with Moses at Sinai. It's because God's going to act in such a way that God will remember our sins no more. And that this will somehow have an effect on us, that it's not that we're going to go, you know, living our same old rotten life and God's not going to care anymore, but that actually the forgiveness of God will create something new in us. That's the idea here. It's that forgiveness creates better behavior, that forgiveness creates forgiven lives, people who forgive others. Um, so that's how the book of Jeremiah, this isn't the last chapter, but this is how it kind of comes to an end with Babylon being judged and with this strong reminder that a time will come when God sends his people home forgiven. Now, Jeremiah didn't tell that story, but the book of Ezra does. And I wanted us to read that as part of this study in order to see how all the pieces of the Bible connect. And so we have in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia an edict that the Lord is commissioning him to send God's children home to rebuild the house of the Lord. Um, who is King Cyrus of Persia? Who is Persia? Well, this is the kingdom that ultimately comes from the north to judge and to overthrow Babylon. Right. So in this succession of nations, Babylon is out, Persia is in, and Persia sends the people home uh, in order to rebuild the house of the Lord. And I think this raises a very interesting question because we read this text and this set of texts, not only historically, we read it as alive today. What does it mean for us to be sent out of exile to rebuild the house of the Lord? So, for instance, St. Francis of Assisi had a vision where he was told to repair God's house. And so he went to get a hammer. He got some wood. He started working on the physical structure. And then God said, OK, you misunderstood me. Uh, I wasn't wanting you to actually, you know, um, paint the walls of the church. I meant this metaphorically. I want you to be a source of healing for the house of God, for the church of God. Rebuild my house by living a sort of life, a good sort of life. And so, you know, the Israelites, historically speaking, they are sent home to rebuild the temple. But as you may know, in the year 70 AD, that temple that is rebuilt gets destroyed by the Romans and it's never built again. Okay, so 
In 586 BC, the Babylonians destroy the temple. Cyrus sends them home to rebuild the temple, which they do. There's great rejoicing, but that temple also gets knocked down. And so in a sense, worldly temples, worldly structures are just like worldly nations. They come, they go, they get built, they get knocked down, they rise, they fall. I mean, that's kind of part of the rhythm being introduced in these chapters. And so for us, what does it mean for the spirit of God to stir in our hearts for us to get ready to go up and to rebuild the house of the Lord? What does it mean for us to rebuild the church, to repair the church through who we become and how we live? I think that those are all good questions that Ezra raises for us today. But again, historically speaking, we're coming full circle. God is sending his people home out of exile 70 years later to rebuild the temple. And Psalm 126, which is our third reading, speaks to this. We're told that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. You know, this makes me ask the question, do dreams come true? Because if you were living in Babylon, you never thought you'd see this day. If you were born in captivity, you never thought you'd see the day. You know, what is it that you never think you're going to be able to see? Do we have hope that God will restore our fortunes? Um, our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue with shouts of joy. Then we said the Lord has done great things for us. And this is in complete contrast to the weeping and gnashing of teeth that the people felt whenever Jerusalem fell and they were sent off into exile. And so I share that because we're going to have moments in life when we're on our way to Babylon. You know, our city has fallen, metaphorically speaking. Things are not going our way. And it's time for us to go into exile. And there will be times when the Lord restores our fortunes. There's going to be times when we get the bad diagnosis, times when we get the good medical news. There's going to be times when things uh, don't work out for us and times when things do work out for us. And part of what's given to us in this rhythm of uh, Jeremiah and Ezra and Psalm 126 is this rhythm of death and resurrection, of exile and homecoming. And can we trust God in the midst of all of it? You know, that is a question. Uh, I want you to pay attention to verse five. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Notice this metaphor of sowing tears. Here, tears are a seed we sow in the ground that bears fruit. That's the metaphor. So in our world, you know, our secular world really only has two strategies for dealing with our tears. We either stuff our pain, you know, we just bury it deep inside and that then manifests as depression or something else, or we vent it, right? We yell at people, we blame, we rage, we vent. But the Bible has a third way. The Bible says, take your pain and plant it like a seed in the ground, plant it into God. And that's what's going to bear fruit. And remember in the book of Jeremiah, bearing fruit is the whole vision for a life of holiness. You know, Jeremiah's complaint with 
the Israelites is that they're bearing wild fruit, you know, wild grapes, um, that they're not bearing the right sort of fruit. And so how is it that we bear fruit for God? Well, it's not by trying harder to be holy. It's actually by taking our struggle, taking our pain, taking our tears, taking our frustration and sowing those into God. Now we can do some creative talking around what that means. For me, that for me that means prayer, it means community, it means worship, it means honesty, it means uh, service. I mean, there are certain practices the church gives us to sow our pain into God. But the vision here is that that's ultimately what bears fruit. I also want you to notice the past and future tense of restoration. So. Verse one says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, that's past tense. And then verse four prays, restore our fortunes, that's future tense. And so there is an already but not yet component to the Lord's restoration and to our salvation. So there is a sense in which you are fully restored now. You are home from exile now. You are with God now. Um, the promise is yours now. And you are like those who dream and your tongue should be filled with shouts of joy, as it says in verse two. And yet, as we enter the season of Advent, what are we praying for? We're praying for the Lord to restore our fortunes. We're praying for all those who weep to come home uh, with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Um, and that's what Advent is. We await the second coming of Christ when that full restoration comes. And so we give thanks for having been restored, and we pray that God will restore us in the future. Last point I want to make, and I can't take credit for this one. Um, Alice Barton made this wonderful point in our Sunday study. Verse 6, those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Um, you remember the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel made a sacrifice pleasing to God. He was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer and the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering, which was the sheaves that Cain brought to God. And Cain got really upset and he killed his brother Abel. And you know, the story of the fall is not just Genesis 3, it's Genesis 4, and it kind of continues all the way to the story of Babel in Genesis 11. Here we have the reversal of Cain's curse, where we come to God carrying our sheaves as Cain did, and that offering is acceptable. It is a beautiful image uh, of coming before God where the offering we bring is acceptable. We are home from exile. Uh, we have sowed in tears. We're now reaping with shouts of joy, and we are finally home. We no longer kill our brother. We no longer hide from our father. We just present our offering to God, and coming home with shouts of joy, that offering is accepted. And so as we go into conversation, I'm going to be curious to know your thoughts, but Part of what I hope we're starting to connect is how Jeremiah has come full circle. The people have broken the covenant. They've been sent into exile. Their 70 years has been completed. They're now being brought home. 
And there's this new everlasting covenant that is hinted at. And what I want us to see is that how this is not just their story, it is also our story. It is a story of being exiled and then being invited to come home, presenting an acceptable sacrifice to God, unlike Cain, right? Having those sheaves, which is a metaphor for fruitfulness, right? A fruitful life, having that being accepted by God. And then also, as we go into Christ the King Sunday, just to see the rise and fall of nations, right? Babylon, ooh, scary King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, actually, he's out. Ooh, scary Cyrus of Persia. Oh, he's not the real king. You know, to see all the different kings of Israel um, cycle in and out, that's not the true king. And whenever we get to Sunday, which is the Sunday prior to Advent, we call it Christ the King Sunday, that Christ is the true king of the world and the one who is said to be the architect or the pioneer or the author of our salvation, which is to say the one who is with us as we go into exile and ultimately the one who has promised to bring us back home.